And you can turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. Some people in this hour believe the nonsense that this portion is not to be included in the Bible, but uh, praise God for it. Amen. I believe it. And we need it. Reading in Mark chapter 16, starting in verse 9. It says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with Him as they mourned and wept. They, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. They went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and abraded them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believe not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, and this is what has been referred to as the, the great commission, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. This morning I would like to speak to us regarding the heresy of cessationism. The heresy of cessationism. Let's pray. Father, we do come, Lord, before your throne. Father, a needy, a hungry people. Lord, we want to have your mind. Lord, we want to be filled with your fullness that we might fully represent you in this hour. Father, I pray you would grant me articulation. I pray by your spirit, O God, you would minister unto each and every heart. Lord, specifically, uniquely, that we would be, Lord, what you have called us to be as a body. Each member fulfilling Lord, they're calling and supplying their specific measure of faith. We ask it, Lord, for the edification of your body and for the glory of your name. 
We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as of late, I have been specifically challenged by two individuals regarding the doctrine of the continuation of the gifts of the Spirit. And and I would say, although I possessed a very strong conviction regarding what I believe as far as what the Scriptures set forth, you know, whenever you're confronted, um, whenever you're challenged, as our pastor has taught us, it's a very good practice to go to the Scriptures. And to dig deeply to see exactly what they have to say. And so because of these situations in my life, and really that's, that's how the Spirit of God will sometimes hem us up to where we need to find out exactly what God says. But, but too often we're not really sensitive to that and we just know generally what we believe. But we don't personally go to the scriptures ourselves. And thus we rob ourselves of the blessing of what, it, what Paul says in Colossians, the full assurance of understanding. Oh, what a phrase. Full assurance comes not by just hearing what is preached, but by personal understanding. And so, I believe by the prompting of God's Spirit, I've sought to dig a little bit deeper into the Scriptures regarding this issue, as well as taking a look at the best arguments of cessationism. And it's it's worse than I thought. I mean, this is... It's, it's laughable, really. It's laughable. What is cessationism? Cessationism is the view that the gifts of the Spirit, such as tongues, prophecy, healing, so forth, have ceased being practiced early on in church history. Cessationists usually believe the miraculous gifts were given only for the foundation of the church during the time between the coming of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost and the fulfillment of God's purposes in history, usually identified as either the completion of the last book of the New Testament when the canon was finalized or the death of the last apostle. That's what to say. Basically, the gifts of the Spirit, the miraculous operation of God in and through His church has for the most part ceased. Thus, cessationism. And so this morning I want to take the opportunity to share with us some of the things that I've been gleaning in my study. As we look this morning at this heresy. And those who believe the gifts have ceased are cessationists. So what are we? Well, we would be called continuous which are really just biblicist. I believe normal Bible believing Christians. That's all that it is. And and really, we're not really just to be continuous. We're really to be expansionists 
Because Jesus said, the works that I did, you'll do the same and even greater works on a greater scale. So the gospel, the kingdom, is, is not just merely to continue, but to expand through God's church. And what we will learn this morning is this. Our bibliology must inform our pneumatology. Pneumatology, that's the study of the Spirit. So our bibliology, the Scriptures, must inform what we believe about the Spirit of God and the gifts of the Spirit. And as we have been experiencing this global pandemic, perhaps you may ask, well, you know, what is really taking place here? Well, what is God really doing? Well, specifically, yes, there are some things we can speculate, but generally you can know this. God's purpose is in His church. That's what basically all of creation is about. It's about the glory of God through Christ being manifest in His church. Therefore, everything that a Christian goes through is for one of two purposes, maybe both. The first thing is to conform us in a greater measure to Christ. Or to give us a platform whereby we can manifest Christ. And that happens primarily through His body. That's ultimately God's desire in the earth. But likewise, Satan has a plan as well. And Satan's plan, likewise, has to do with the church. He's all in everything that's going on. He's behind the scenes and ultimately he is seeking to touch that church. And that's what we've seen through this pandemic. Indeed, the, the finger of Satan has touched the church, but he's also seeking to neutralize that church. You see, God's purposes are wrapped up in the church being the body being the body. And Satan knows that. And like, like, and because of that, he seeks to undermine that. We see in the book of Jude, we're exhorted to earnestly contend for the faith. Why is that? Because certain demonically inspired men have crept in to seek to neutralize that church. And Jude tells us, how does that take place? Number one, by turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. You see, the grace of God is the power of God, whereby the doctrine of this book becomes incarnated. And and if we just believe grace is just, you know, it's just forgiveness, it's just this unmerited favor. If if men believe that, then Christ will never fully be manifested. Do you see how brilliant Satan is in his attack? He seeks to change the house of God from the house of God to the house of man. I was talking to a, a young man on, on the phone. He was wanting to revamp my website. And he said, oh, I like your website. I, I like that statement up there where it says where Jesus is Lord and, and customer service is always in season. And he began to tell me that he was a, a drummer and, and that he really, uh, he was affiliated with Stephen Furtick. You know, I said, oh, well, sir, I don't think too highly of, you know, Stephen Furtick. 
And I saw a clip. I, he, he invited me. He said, call me. I said, I'd like to talk to you about these things. He said, call me. Well, I saw a clip by Stephen Furtick. And, he, and basically, he made this statement. He said, basically, the church is not for you. The church is solely for the world. We exist only that people can come in here and be saved. Well, that's a truth that people are to come in here and to be saved. But the only way that we can bless the world is if we are a pure and a true representation of Christ. And by making this the house of man, oh, it sounds so good, but it undermines and neutralizes the effectiveness of the church in the earth. In fact, I wonder what some of you really believe about the church. You know, in the midst of this pandemic, the pastor makes some statements such as, I'm so thankful for the church after having been separated. Oh, how important the church is. And when he makes a statement like that, you know what the Spirit of God prompts me to do? Say, Amen. Amen. You know why? Because I love you. And I love God. And when he makes a statement about the church, how important it is to be committed I want him to know and I want you to know that I believe that that's important because you let a crisis crash in on us. You need to know that I'm a man under authority. You need to know that I'm not some renegade that's going to do my own thing because there's some of you in here that I wouldn't want to be in a spiritual foxhole with you because you have not demonstrated that you're committed to this church, really to His church. That's a reality. You hear me? That is an essential. And this is a way that Satan neutralizes the church by deceiving people to think that it's really not that big of a deal. Do you have biblical precedent for what you're saying, Brother Charlie? Have you ever considered that Jesus said he was eaten up with a zeal for his father's house? You see, all those that are filled with His Spirit, they understand the importance of His church. And they're committed to that church unto the death. And the reason some of you don't really believe that is because Jesus said, you'll only know the doctrine if you do my will. When you give yourself to the church, you'll see it and you'll believe it. And there won't be any doubt in anybody else's mind. That man's a man under authority who's committed to God's church. Amen. That's, I love everybody in here. Oh, really? That's how you practically love other people right there. We see through evangelism, the redefining thereof, the church has been neutralized. But one of the primary ways Satan strikes 
is in regards to the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the Spirit. You see, it's by the baptism of the Holy Ghost that that grace of God becomes a reality. The grace of God is just the Spirit of God. And the grace of God by which Christ is manifested is primarily via the baptism of the Holy Ghost and the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit. So no wonder this doctrine is attacked. But you know, Christianity is so simple. Just, just read the Bible, you know. And this is one of those doctrines, you know, I've talked to you about the desert island challenge. If a man was on a desert island with just a Bible, and he just read it under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, what would he believe? I guarantee you, he wouldn't come off of that island being a Calvinist. Because you have to have a guru to teach you such heresies. He wouldn't come off of that island believing once saved, always saved. He wouldn't come off that island believing heliocentricity either. If he just took the testimony of the... You see, you've got to be taught that. And you're not taught that by the scriptures. He wouldn't believe in the gap theory that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. He wouldn't believe in the day-age theory that a day is not really a day, but thousands of years. You see, you've got to be taught these things by men. These things aren't taught to men by the Holy Ghost. A belief in the local flood. A belief in an old earth. This woe is me defeated Christianity we can't even overcome and live free from sin. You don't get that from the Bible. If you really want truth. And the doctrine of cessationism. If you just allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. And as a little child receive the testimony thereof. You would never believe cessationism. But what rules the day? Traditions of men. Faulty hermeneutics, arguments from silence, the unwarranted esteem for science, personal experience, and the imposition of non-biblically warranted presuppositions, namely anti-supernaturalism. You've got to have God to live the Christian life. You understand? This isn't something that we're going to figure out. And this isn't something that we're going to accomplish and overcome in our own strength. This is supernatural. And apart from His grace and His enabling power, we can't live this life. We can't manifest Christ without the supernatural power and grace of God. But that's discounted. God couldn't create me six literal days. I mean, how could He really do that? I mean, Keeping the Bible absolutely perfect. I mean, really actually living holy. You see, amen. Those things are impossible with man. But through God, they are possible. Thus, Jesus said, you do greatly err. Why? Because you don't know the scriptures, nor have you experienced the power of God. 
And so what we're dealing with here this morning is a matter of biblical authority and sound hermeneutics. And we've learned the way we interpret the scripture. And one of those principles is the perspicuity of the scripture. In other, the Bible is easy to understand if you really want truth. God is the greatest communicator ever. And what he says, that's what he means. We also have... The concept or the principle that the explicit or the plain governs the implicit or the implied. But instead, what do we have today? Unnaturally imposed traditions and presuppositions of men who will not just be as a little child and receive the testimony of the scripture. So what are the explicit statements of the scripture in regards to the present manifestation of the gifts of the spirit? Well, we just read in our text one of the greatest. And this is the great commission. This is to defy. This is the context of the dominion mandate that Christ gave to his church when he left. And this is what we are to do until he returns. And a part of that, he said, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Pretty plain, pretty explicit. Jesus in John 14 and 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. And that statement is made six times in the book of John. It's a general statement. Whosoever believes on me, this is what he can expect. The works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I go to my Father. First Corinthians 14 and 1. A command. Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts. There's an explicit command. You are to desire spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 14, 39. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy... And forbid not to speak with tongues. First Thessalonians 5, 19 through 21. Quench not the spirit, despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. James chapter 5. Is there any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Do you see these explicit, plain, perspicuous statements? What does the Bible teach us? These signs shall follow those that believe. He that believeth the works that I do, shall he do also. Desire spiritual gifts. Covet to prophesy. Forbid not to speak with tongues. Despise not prophesyings. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. This is the explicit testimony of God in the scripture.
But I listened to a few debates regarding this subject. And I was listening to a man debating against people like James White and other men that know the Scriptures, know the Greek. They, they have exhaustive knowledge as far as what the Scripture says. And they're trained debaters. And the man just simply, he said, in his, in his cross-examination, I just simply ask you one question, just, just one. I've given you all of these explicit statements here, plain and clear. Can you just give me one explicit statement that says that these things have been rescinded or it's no longer the case? Just one. One of the men said, well, I've, I've given you the cascade argument. I thought, well, that might help you if you're washing some dishes or something, but it's not going to help you when dealing with this right here. Uh, oh, no, you just don't understand the argument. No, I think I do understand. I understand that I've given you explicit biblical statements and you cannot provide one explicit statement to say that these things have ceased or been rescinded. You see, the Bible doesn't say speak in tongues for now, but you better forbid to speak in tongues once the canon comes into existence. The gifts of the Spirit, they're for a season. But if you'll keep handy your Captain Crunch Bible decoder, then you'll be able to tease out these cryptic hints that I've left in you, and you'll see the cascade argument yourself. You see, the Scriptures explicitly state these truths. The question to anyone who denies them is simply this. On what scriptural basis do you ignore and deny these truths? When and where were they overturned and rescinded? You see, we must honor the doctrine of sola scriptura. And everyone that does, everyone that is influenced not by tradition, not by what he may not want to be associated, not by science falsely so-called, not by those that are influenced by the Scripture, they are always continuous because that's what the Scripture teaches. And this is what we must understand, saints, that this is about the integrity and the character of God. You see, the cessation is, he's not merely just setting forth, you know, his pet doctrine or his theology. He's saying something about God. About God's character and God's integrity and the way God communicates. I've been talking to a, a family member who is Embraced hyper-dispensationalism. That's another thing you'd never find on that desert island. I'll tell you what. You talk about having to tease. I mean, wow. He's saying baptism is not for today. And I said, okay, let's just think. Here comes John the Baptist, the man introduced, John the Baptist, the man introducing Christ. And he comes and he preaches and he's baptized. He even baptizes Jesus. And then here we have Jesus preaching and his disciples are baptizing people. He gives the great commission. Go into all the world, preach, 
baptizing people. You go into the book of Acts, they're back. What forbids me from being baptized? On the day, repent and be baptized. They're being baptized everywhere. I mean, this is part of the warp and the woof of Christianity. It's everywhere. So, in light of that, what's your explicit scripture in which God canceled this? Oh, it's in First Corinthians where Paul said, I came not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so I just simply asked the question, when Paul came not to baptize in Corinth, did he baptize anybody? Well, yeah, he did. He did baptize a few people. So that can't mean that he was doing away with baptism. That just meant like Jesus, I'm going to let my disciples do the baptizing so you won't continue to be carnal and say, Paul, baptize me. And so what you're saying to me is this. You take the warp and the woof, the clear testimony of Scripture, which says baptism. And you want to take this verse here, which doesn't even mean what you say it means. And you're going to tell me that God calls me accursed because I'm preaching another gospel according to you. You're telling me because of that, God wants me to forsake baptism. Oh, he didn't want to answer that right there. You see, you see, when you come up with a truth like that, you better understand that you're telling other people, this is what God says about it. And when you tell me that God, who explicitly said all of this about the gifts of the Spirit, and there's not one explicit text saying that he rescinded it and you want me based on this vague inference to give this up not on your life you see I believe God is a better communicator than that God doesn't depend on you having your secret Geneva decoder He's very capable of communicating. And I don't believe that about our perspicuous God. You hear me? We can know what he says. Yes, sir. So the issue seems clear to me. But what are the arguments that these cessationists set forth? Here you go right here. Here's one. If the spiritual gifts of 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10 are valid for Christians beyond the death of the apostles, then why were they absent from church history until their alleged reappearance in the 20th century? That's one of their arguments right there. What's the answer? Who told you that? <laughs> Wait, what are you omniscient? You, you know what was going on in everyone's heart, in everyone's home, in the church throughout. You really know what was going on? Who says they were absent? Granted, they were at times less prevalent. But the same could be said about the presence of signs and wonders and miracles in biblical history as well. In any case, to argue that all such gifts were utterly non-existent is to ignore a significant body of evidence from church history. Here's what Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, said. He lived from 100 to 165. He boasted to Trifo that the prophetic gifts remain with us. 
Irenaeus 120-200. He said, we've heard of many of the brethren who have foreknowledge of the future, visions, prophetic utterances, others by laying on of hands, heal the sick and restore them to health. We hear of many members of the church who have prophetic gifts and by the Spirit speak with all kinds of tongues and bring men's secret thoughts to light and expound upon the mysteries of God. Apollinarius, the prophetic gifts must continue in the church until the final coming as the apostle insists. We're going to get into that. And then Augustine from 354 to 430 who earlier, early on espoused cessationism later retracted his position and carefully documented no fewer than 70 instances of divine healings in a two-year span. Here are some testimonies from history. Moreover, we have extensive knowledge of but a small fraction of what happened in the history of the church. Therefore, it's terribly presumptuous to conclude that the gifts of the Spirit were absent from the lives of God's people about whom we know virtually Nothing. We simply don't know what was really happening in the thousands upon thousands of churches and home meetings. In other words, the absence of evidence is not necessarily the evidence of absence. We must also remember that the printing press with movable type did not exist until Johann Gutenberg in the 1400s. And the absence of documented evidence for spiritual gifts in a time when documented evidence for most of the church life at best was sparse, there were hardly good grounds for concluding that such gifts did not exist. Further, we must remember that prior to the Reformation in the 16th century, the average Christian did not have access to a Bible in his own language. And that is hardly the sort of atmosphere in which people could even be aware of the spiritual gifts. And thus hardly the sort of atmosphere in which we could expect them to seek and pray for such phenomena or to recognize them when they were manifest. And I believe that God in His mercy manifests these gifts through people that don't even believe in them. I read a testimony of Spurgeon didn't believe in the continuation of the gifts. But he said, preaching, once he just pointed to a man in the church. He talked about a man who has a shoe store, but he keeps his shoe store open on Sunday. And last Sunday, he sold some shoes, and he made 12 pence. And once he paid for his expenses, he had a few pence left. He had four pence left over. <laughs> and he read that man's mail. <laughs> Told him exactly what he'd done. He said that happened on many occasions. You see, that's a supernatural gift of the Spirit. But we're not always aware that these things are taking place. Furthermore, if we do concede for the sake of argument that certain gifts were less prevalent than others in certain seasons of the church, their absence may well be due to unbelief, apostasy, and sin, which grieves the Spirit of God. You remember what Jesus said? He couldn't do many miracles, only heal a few sick folk because of their unbelief. That's the reason why we don't see the manifestation of the Spirit. You see, we believe the Spirit of God is the teacher of the church. 
And we believe that he enlightens and illumines his people. Yet within the first generation after the death of the apostles, the doctrine of justification by faith had become compromised. So if God intended for the Holy Ghost to continue to teach and enlighten Christians concerning biblical biblical truths beyond the death of the apostles, then why did the church languish in ignorance of this most fundamental truth for more than 1,300 years? You see, sometimes things are lost. But that's not the will and the desire of God. Finally, and most important of all is the fact that what has or had not occur, has not occurred in church history is really irrelevant. You see, the final criteria for deciding whether God wants to bestow certain spiritual gifts on His people today is the Word of God. And the issue is not to be decided by personal experience or testimony, whether good or bad. I heard of a man named Craig Keener. Don't even hardly know anything about him. He's written a book on miracles. He says it is documented that over 200 million people alive today have witnessed supernatural miracles. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. But then you take the other extreme, a man like Peter Popoff, <laughs> who would have his, his wife give people cards and, and fill in their ailments and then had a little earpiece on by which his wife would speak to him and, and he would, you know, miraculously call them out in the service and go and pray for them. You see, we have a great testimony, 200 plus million. And then we have the, you know, the abuses. But really, no matter how good or no matter how bad, it's both irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what does the Bible say? It's, it's one way. Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletum. And so if you get out your hyper-dispensationalist Captain Crunch decoder, that'll tell you that the gifts were waning out. These are the arguments. You see... You heard, what about John Wesley? What about Charles Finney? They didn't speak in tongues that we know of. They didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence in speaking in other tongues like we do. What about that? I'll tell you what I think about that. I greatly admire John Wesley and Charles Finney. But I obey the Apostle Paul. That's what I believe. What he says... No matter the testimony, good or bad, in church history. A second argument which they appeal is this. Signs, wonders, and miraculous gifts of the Spirit, such as tongues, interpretation, healing, the discerning of spirits, were designed to confirm, attest, and authenticate the apostolic message. That's why God did that. To confirm the apostolic message when God was laying the foundation of the church. And they use this scripture right here in 2 Corinthians 12 and 12. Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. That proves it right there. That It was exclusively for the apostles. Doesn't that prove it? I mean, I... You know, I'm reading these proofs and that's one of their proofs. 
does that prove that it was exclusively for the apostles? No, it just proves that the apostles had signs and wonders following them. You see, again, this argument is not explicitly set forth in Scripture. They've already got their presupposed paradigm And now they're going to the scriptures not to exegete the true meaning and compare scripture with scripture, but to impose what they already believe and rest it and twist it and make it say what they want it to say. That's what's going on. Nowhere in the New Testament does Jesus, Paul, or anyone say that only the apostles would work miracles and have the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It is true, signs, wonders, miracles often attested the divine origin of apostolic ministry. Absolutely. But this is a persuasive argument against the contemporary validity of the gifts only if you can demonstrate these two things. Number one, you must demonstrate that apostolic authentication was the sole and exclusive purpose of such displays of divine power. That seems pretty plain. However, here's the problem. There is not so much as a single inspired syllable of Scripture that does so. Nowhere in the New Testament is the purpose or the function of the miraculous reduced to that of apostolic attestation. The miraculous, in whatever form in which it appeared, served many purposes according to the Scripture. Jesus raised Lazarus. Why? For the glory of God. Much of the miracles of Christ. Why did He do them? He had compassion on the multitudes. It was just an expression of the very nature and heart of God. The Bible says the Lord that healeth you. That, that F according to brother. That just means that that's God's nature. That's who he is. And that's what he does through everyone that is full of his spirit. Moreover, there are several texts which indicate that one primary purpose of miraculous phenomena was to edify and build up the body of Christ, which is still. Present. First Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. It says, The manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man. Why? To profit with all the body. It says in 1 Corinthians 14 and 3, He that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. And then in 1 Corinthians 14 and 4, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth him Self, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. You see, that's another very important function of the gifts of the Spirit. To edify the church. And so that we can edify and build up ourselves. (coughs) Thus, it is clear that the Scriptures never explicitly state that the gifts of the Spirit And the miracles were exclusively for apostolic attestation. The second thing that must be demonstrated to prove that premise is that only the apostles performed signs, wonders, and miracles and exercised so-called miraculous gifts. But this is contrary to the corpus and the evidence of the Scripture. 
We have the 70 who were commissioned in Luke 10 by Jesus who worked signs and wonders. At least 108 people among the 120 were gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost that spoke in other tongues. We have Stephen in Acts 6. A man who was ordained to wait tables used by God mightily in the miraculous. Acts chapter 8. Philip working signs and not one of the twelve. Acts 9, Ananias who went and laid hands upon Paul. We have Philip's daughters who were prophesying hardly part of the twelve apostles. Consider this passage in Galatians 3 and 5. Paul in writing to them said, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Evidently, there were brethren, elders, not part of the twelve in Galatia that were working miracles. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 12. We see the same thing regarding the Thessalonians in First Thessalonians chapter 5. A plethora of testimonies that show it was not exclusive to the apostles to operate in the supernatural and the gifts of the Spirit. Furthermore, consider this passage in 1 Corinthians 12 and 28. God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets. And this is their argument. According to Ephesians 2 and 20, the foundation of the church has been laid by the apostles and prophets. So it was only those apostles and prophets that operated in the gifts. And thus we see here in this scripture that God has set some in the church, first apostles, then prophets. But thirdly, teachers. Do we have teachers today? Yes, sir. Linked right in there with the apostles and prophets. He goes on to say, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. You see how God has so gloriously just interwoven all that together? He didn't separate the apostles and prophets. He said, we've got apostles and prophets, then we've also got teachers. We've also got those that are there that are called in helps, in governments, but also with those diversities of tongues and miracles. It's all included together. Now, I, there's never going to be another apostle like the 12 apostles. That's one of the arguments that they make. No, we don't believe that. But there are still those who walk in the apostolic office of being sent out and planting and establishing works for God. And that's necessary for the continuation of the church. Romans 12. Many members, one body. We being many are one body in Christ and everyone members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace given unto us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy that supernatural. According to the proportion of faith or ministry, let us wait on our ministering or he that teacheth on teaching, he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. Again, do you see the, the mingling together of the supernatural as well as these other gifts in the body? And finally, 
the promise of Pentecost, which is the crowning glory of the new covenant, in that God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. That, that defines this dispensation right here. And what does it say? What did Peter say when he stood up on the day of Pentecost? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. When are the last days? Right now. From Pentecost until Jesus returns. There's, there's a time index for you. What he's talking about is going to take place throughout the last days. God says, I will pour out my spirit upon my apostles and prophets alone. I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Praise God. Your young men shall see visions. Old men dream dreams. On my servants and handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit. And they shall prophesy. Who who is that for? I just, you know, those that were there and, you know, maybe to their children during that generation. Before the apostles all passed away and the canon came about. It's linked up. It says this promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. It's pretty plain. It's pretty clear. It's pretty explicit if you just receive the testimony of Scripture. Another argument is out of 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure you've heard this one right here. It says, whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The key question is, what is that which is perfect? What is it referring to? And you know what the cessationists will say? It's referring to the canonization of Scripture. Is that what that passage says? (laughs) No, that's not what that passage... It's what they infer because of their presupposed paradigm. You see, the problem, though, with saying that the perfect refers to the canonization of Scripture is that that interpretation creates an internal problem with the text. You see, we must allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And the Scripture is perfect. And thus there will never be a contradiction. But what happens if we allow that which is perfect to be the canon? Well, we have an internal problem. Because the Scripture gives us some additional information regarding what else will take place when the perfect comes. He says when the perfect comes, we will also see face to face and be known even as we are known. When does that take place? Well, compare Scripture to Scripture. When when are we going to see God face to face? Well, just go to Revelation. It says there, In Revelation chapter 22, when he showed me a river of of water of life, clear as crystal, it says there 
There will be no more curse, but the throne of God of the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall see him, and they shall see his face. That's when we're going to see God's face. When Christ returns. That's when, when perfect has come at the consummation of all things. We will then see God face to face. And we will also know Him even as we are known. Perfect. Absolute knowledge. And no one in their right mind would say that that has been fulfilled through the canon. In fact, that's why we're still seeing through a glass darkly in many areas. You see, it's it's so clear when you allow the Scripture to interpret the Scripture and you don't impose your presuppositions and traditions upon the Bible. So does the Scripture give us explicit information regarding how long the gifts would be active in the church. Indeed, God does. Oh, what a beautiful scripture this is. First Corinthians chapter one. Paul says, I thank God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you're enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Listen to this. So that Ye come behind in no gift. And that's the same word speaking about the gifts of the Spirit. So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? You come behind in no gift. And those gifts will be available to you in operation until the coming of Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that glorious information regarding how long these gifts would last? Then we have Ephesians 4. The giving of these gifts. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Until when? Till we all come in the unity of the faith, under the knowledge of the Son. Has that taken place yet? No, not at all. Therefore, we need these gifts. So as we conclude here this morning, the question is, what saith the Scripture? That's it. It's as easy as that. And the testimony to those who are lovers of truth and those who tremble at God's Word, to those who, hey, is there a lot of abuse in regards to the gifts? You better believe it. Don't bear witness with any of that nonsense that takes place out there under the name of Pentecost. Utter apostate. A complete, utter misrepresentation of Christ. But we must not be ashamed of what God has offered and even commanded. And that's another reason 
Why people are not free? Why they don't get? Hey, there's a stigma. Amen. <laughs> you, you're going to have to relinquish control to God. You, you might not look dignified. Amen. That's just part of it. You're not going to look dignified, and you're going to be associated with the people that definitely are dignified. Hey, praise God. That's part of it. So how should this affect us? You know, Jesus condemned those that sought for signs. But that's not what we're speaking about here. We're speaking about people who would not believe the self-attesting testimony of Christ. And because they were rebels, wouldn't bow to his authority. And in order to justify their rebellion, well, well give us a, give us a sign. Let, let us tell you what you're going to do so you can prove. That's what he condemned. But you read what the early church did. They prayed. In Acts 4, well, what was their prayer? Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the holy child Jesus. You think God was pleased with that prayer? Yes, sir. sir. It says when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. Amen. Amen. We should have the same That's right. heart. That's right. and I would dare to say that there are some cessationists. Maybe not in doctrine, but practically here among us this morning. As it's been preached a lot. Some of you have ceased Moving forward, you're, you're a cessationist in that sense. But also, what has God called each of us to do? See, we're talking about the body. We're talking about the body being whole. We're talking about the body having access and and walking in all that God intended. And this is not merely spiritual gifts. It's each one of us finding our place in God's house. And you know how you can tell when somebody is really full of the Holy Ghost? They're really a disciple? They're earnestly asking God, what's my place? What would you have for me to do? See this, don't, don't, we're gonna, it, it does involve spiritual gifts. You better believe it. But this is just as much a part of it right here. And I should be able to ask each one of you that's been saved for any length of time, what has God specifically called you to do here in this body? Going to church on Friday nights with all the men. Uh, that's what everybody does. What has he called you, Timothy, uniquely to do?
And if you couldn't look me in the face and tell me this is what he has called me to do in this church. And this is how I'm going about fulfilling it. Then you might as well be a cessationist yourself. You understand? Now, I'm going to make the statement, Brother Britkin. He has the authority to explicitly rescind it. (laughs) Amen. But I would say this. I believe it's a reproach that Brother Britt even has to come to a work day on a Saturday. He doesn't mind doing it. Amen. Glad to do it. But it's a reproach in my eyes that the man of God can't be at home doing what God has called him to do. Seeking God for a word in due season. And why is that? It's because some of you have been called to that function in the body. But you're not fulfilling your part. And I mean, was this preached, what, six, how many months ago? Did Brother Britt preach a whole series on this? But you know what happens at CFF? Just goes right over your head. Oh, I'm convicted. You know, I know I'm not doing my part. But then just go your own way and do your own thing. Until somebody comes along with a spiritual two by four and whacks you up against the head and says, Hey, you remember what God said? You see, we all have unique giftings, a specific function in this church that God would have each of us to fulfill. Going to the prison, going to the nursing home, intercessory prayer. All of us can do that. I'm just, there's something God wants you to do. And if you're not praying about that and doing that, then you are as good as a cessationist. And that's one of the greatest avenues of grace right there. That's, you find people that are just growing in God and they're given to the church. They found their place. And God, God blesses them. They've got life. They've got zeal. They've got abundance. They're going forward. And every single one has found their place in the church. Amen. Are you praying about that? Really? Are you asking? And that's how you, when you get backslidden in heart, you cease to be concerned about the body in that way. I can tell when I began to really get pressed in, I start praying about the body. I start praying for others in the body. And I start, God, we need the gifts of the Spirit in our midst. Do you pray about that? Do you covet earnestly to prophesy? That's how, you, that's how we can take our spiritual temperature. Because when we really love the head, We're going to be jealous for the body, for finding our place and specifically seeking God that he would equip us and harness us and anoint us that we would fulfill that place in the natural and in the spirit. Do you see that? That's really what this message, it's not about those cattle reform, they don't believe in the gifts of the spirit, bunch of ignorant theological nincompoops. Anybody can do that. That's not what this is about. This is about each of us 
finding our place in the body of Christ. That this body would be whole. That Christ in his fullness would be manifest in us and through us. That from the least to the greatest, each one of us would be full of the Holy Ghost, eaten up with a zeal for God's house, finding our place, being addicted to the ministry of the saints. That's what this is about. Let's stand here this morning. Amen. Yes, sir. So, Brother Charlie, why don't we see a greater manifestation of the gifts? I agree with Little Ravenhill. Simply... Because we're content not to. That's it. That's it. Do I have to see the gifts of the Spirit of God? God, no. And when you find people, you know, I mean, where are the gifts of the Spirit? What's going on? That's never God. That's, that's people trying to find fault and justify themselves. I'm not talking about that Spirit right there. But we should have healthy desire within our hearts to operate according to that gifting that God has entrusted to us. And usually we don't become really burdened about that until there's a real pressing need before us. You know, just meditate. Think about our pastor. Amen. Serious physical condition. But what's going on here? But we know God is sovereign. God's in control. But sometimes it takes either ourselves or somebody we really love and care about. Somebody that we really need in our lives. To where God can then slip us up against the head and get our attention. To cause us, hey, this is life and death. We need the fullness of God. And our children need to see the fullness of God in this house. You see, this, this is what God is saying to us. Amen. That's what Micah told me. He got that little baby in his hands. Hey, I tell you what, that'll change you. That'll give you a burden. Amen. That'll cause you to assume spiritual responsibility. You see that? And God uses things like that in our life. Let's come to this altar here this morning. Amen. What has God called you to do in this house?
seek the Lord, church. Some of you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. Some of you need to be filled afresh with the Spirit of God. Some of you need to put away independence. And you need to come in and come under. You see, the Holy Ghost didn't fall until they were first all in one accord in one place. open our eyes God burden us Lord a fresh renewed vision Lord a zeal for your house Father a jealousy to find our place in your kingdom Lord to study to show ourselves approved Lord to give ourselves Lord to the ministry that you've entrusted unto us Oh God, we ask, Lord, for your glory and by your spirit, God, turn our hearts. Lord, awaken us. Draw us, oh God, unto yourself. We need your presence, Lord. Lord, set all things in order, oh God, here in our midst. That we might be unto you a suitable vessel and a body, fitly framed together. That Christ in his fullness and beauty might be manifest oh God you know Ephesians 4 really is a declaration of what the church should be or the experience of being in a church in order, amen, and God's means and method of bringing that church up and spiritual maturity and growth. And in verse 16, it says, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part make it an increase of the body under the edifying of itself in love. You can't read that without, you know, the picture of every cup running over, of strength here and strength there, and, and people operating the way God intended for them to operate. That every personality, every individual, every a member has a place in that body and that there's a gifting, there's, there's strengths that God is going to be using to edify and minister to other members of the body. And so you have this modern view of the church of it's just like a broke down emergency room. Well, that ain't in the Bible. Now, granted, there's people that come in that need ministry that need to be born again. Amen? But you get born again, you get the truth. And the truth does what? It makes you free. And if 10 years down the road, you're still trying to figure out whether you're going to pay tithes or not, something's wrong with you. 
Your family's all confused. Your marriages are breaking. Fighting and bickering. Can't get along. That ain't truth. That's not Christianity. That's right. And you know what it is? It's just plain selfishness. Because you ain't minister to nobody. Go out there all week long. You don't have to sip whiskey and play the lottery. You can do is bicker and fight and argue, not pray, walk in the flesh, then come up in here and try to get your mind together to hear the word of God. Listen to me, friend. Crumple that up in a ball, light, a, light it by a match, and throw it away and burn it and start over. Because that ain't real Christianity. That's right. Come on. If you don't have the victory, something wrong with you. You just got born again. It's going to take some time for God to establish you. But just going five, ten, fifteen years, you just, and there's no, no one to blame but you. But no wonder the body doesn't function because you got nothing to give. Shame on you. Really, shame on you. You should get full of the Holy Ghost. And you say, well, I don't, I don't really know what God wants me to do. You know what you do? Concentrate on Jesus. Just like I said, my, my leg ain't working right now. My leg is not functioning with the rest of my body. My leg is sick. My, my leg is out of order. Amen. And I've been laying in bed for a whole week. Totally disabled me. A lot of pain, a lot of agitation. Just because I got one limb that won't cooperate. That, that one limb has a function that God gave it. And my other leg is trying to make up for that and that's causing problems too. But when my, my leg gets healthy, you know, just sitting there, look, brother, Britt's leg is glowing in the dark. <laughs> Must be healthy. Brother Britt's leg singing Amazing Grace. Come on. You gotta do nothing like that. You know what you'll notice? My body will function properly. And when you get healed in here, friend, come on. This body will function rightly. And I'll be something that everybody notices. It's important to God. Whatever God has you to do, that's important to Him. And that's what you have to find. And you find that by seeking Him with all your heart. If you seek Him with all your heart, and you give everything and you sell out, amen, then you're going to find that place. Amen? And God's going to equip you. Praise the Lord. I'm not a cessationist. Amen. amen. Praise God. I believe in the gifts yes, of the sir. Holy Ghost. Yes, sir. I believe, therefore, today. Yes, sir. I believe in the baptism of the Holy amen. Ghost with the evidence yes, of speaking sir. with other tongues. You don't speak with tongues, you're not filled with That's the Holy right. Ghost. God commands you to get full of the Holy Ghost. If you're not full of the Holy Ghost, you're not equipped to be a witness for Jesus. That's right. End of conversation. Yes, sir. And I do believe that there is a great need for many here that say they're filled to be refilled and to get free and to pray through. Amen. Somebody say praise God. Let's stand. Brother Samuel, would you dismiss us with prayer?
Amen. God bless you. Hug someone as you go. We will see you, Lord willing, this evening, 6 o'clock for prayer.